0: I wanna greet you in the beautiful and wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanna say thank you to Pastor Jim, Taylor. I got a call from Taylor about a little over a month ago and he said, uh, Jim really wants an elder to speak on Sunday morning and um, we've talked to every available elder, deacon and person on the street and we can't find anybody, would you be available? And I said, sure, thanks. Um. yeah. So would you uh, go to the Lord with me in prayer, please? Great God in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the beauty and wonder of your character. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the chance to meet together and to study your word. God, would you please lift up your name? Would you glorify yourself? Would you give us intimacy with you? Would you help draw us to yourself? Would you give us appetites and affections that reflect your greatness? And God, would you help us to see you more clearly, to hear your voice and to walk with courage, godly courage? God, our church is in a time of transition, scary transition with a million things going on and a million questions being asked. And God, all I want is to see you lifted up among us. God, would you do this for Your glory and for our good? Guide us through Scripture now, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I uh, just want to say, uh, all kidding aside, Taylor, thanks for calling me. And I know he's here, but I lost him. But <clears throat> um, and uh, man, I I, comp- I don't know about you, but I completely lost it during the baptism. I was going to try to keep it to hold it together, you know, keep my makeup in place and everything, and. Uh, when you, when you see five loves walk up here, five little loves, and then the big loves, and Brad and I have, we have a dear, we have a special relationship that you don't know about, and I just, man, I needed a towel to like wipe off. I'm, I'm going to cry again if I look at him, so I'm not going to do it. Well done. Uh, before I start tonight, <clears throat> let me look over here so I don't lose it again, so um, before I start this morning... I wanna say a couple things to you. Number one, I don't have this figured out. Um, The title of this talk has something to do with intimacy and a starting place with Jesus, and I want that desperately. I want it in my own life. I want it in the life of my family. I want it in the life of this church. I'm 100% convinced that if we don't understand intimacy with Jesus, then we don't need to have meetings and we don't need committees and we don't need a lot of anything because everything else will just be surface. We need intimacy with him. We need to know his word and walk in his truth and have courage. That's what we need. And if you want to know what the elders think, because I'm supposed to be here as a representative of the elders to bring a message to you, if you want to know what our heartbeat is for this church, it's not programs, it's not larger buses or bigger gymnasiums. It is that we would understand the truth and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would learn to walk with him. And that's it. Thank God he has given us detail men and women. And so those things get worked out, but that's where our heart is. The other thing I want to say is this, not only do I not have this figured out, but um, there are passages that haunt me from time to time. Passages like Luke nine twenty three, where Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow me, he needs to deny himself. Take up his cross. I don't understand the um, allure of walking with an instrument of crucifixion attached to me all the time. I don't have that figured out yet. That's not the level of sacrificial living that I'm doing right now. I want to, and I want our church to do it. Passages like Romans 7, I can associate really well with, but it still haunts me. Paul says, I find at work in me a law. And the law is this, that the things I want to do, I don't find myself doing. But the things I don't want to do, these things I find myself doing. And so I see within me a war. Passages like Hebrews 12. About running races with perseverance. I get tired. It's been a rough 18 months, guys. 18 months ago, I was being a doctor, doing my thing, coming home, loving my family, just trying to figure it out. And then COVID. And then COVID. Sleeping in a garage for three months, not knowing if it was going to be Ebola or the flu or the measles or TB. I pronounced more people dead in 2020 than I have in the previous 19 years of my career. The average age was 59. The average age since July, excuse me, January of 2021 has been 39. It's been a rough year. Some of you in in this room have had a rough 18 months. You've lost loved ones, you've lost spouses, you've lost mentors, you've lost children. And for the sake of navigating all of these different things that God brings into our life, which I am 100% convinced are 100% not out of the reach of his sovereignty to navigate those things, I think we need intimacy with Jesus. So that's why the sermon. That's why the message. That's why the topic. I have a newfound respect for Jim Fleming and Taylor Park and other men who would labor consistently in a pulpit. I had no idea what you go through before you try to do one of these things. I mean, you can look up sermon outlines all day long. You can find a million of them, right? I mean, just YouTube it or Google it or something. I mean, there's a million of them out there. But when you start to interact with the Lord and ask him and plead for him to show his character, we have an enemy. And that enemy strikes hard. So walk through scripture with me now and let's see what the Lord would teach us. So, why Peter? I'm going to talk a lot about Peter for the next few minutes. Um, Peter, for me, is a person that uh, I can really relate with, uh, relate to, um, but not for the following reasons. The 12 apostles are named four times in the New Testament. Every time they're mentioned in total, Peter's the first that's mentioned. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells his apostles, his disciples, soon to be apostles, he tells them, you did not choose me, I chose you. That's why Peter, because he was chosen. Because he was the first, because he was the spokesman. In Ephesians 3, 5, we learn that the apostles were charged to be stewards of God's grace. That's why Peter... In Revelation twenty one fourteen, we we have a description of the foundation stones of the wall of the New Jerusalem, specifically twelve stones inscribed with the twelve names of the apostles. That's a pretty elite club. The jury's out on who number twelve is, but I know one of them is Peter. No other disciple is mentioned more in the New Testament than Peter. No other disciple speaks directly to the Lord in a brash and human and fleshy and needy tone than Peter. And no other disciple receives such responses from the Lord himself. That's why Peter. Nobody presses the Lord so pointedly and no other disciple frankly has so much interaction with the Lord. And frankly, and to put a cap on it, I need to see Peter's life in the New Testament because I need to know that Jesus is willing to and okay with working with a failing, brash, impetuous, and needy disciple. Because that's me. How about you? Wouldn't it be great to know that The Lord's not put off with your momentary lapses. Wouldn't it be great to know that even in the midst of the big no-nos, the Lord's not going anywhere. That's why Peter, and that's why this. Peter asks some questions that I think we'd all want to ask if we were honest. He asks the meaning of a difficult saying from Jesus. He asks, how many times should I forgive? How about that one? Anybody ever asked that question before? I mean, this person is on my last nerve, Jesus. Can I please just be done with them? Peter asked that question. Peter asked, what's the reward of following you, Jesus? I mean, what do I get out of this transaction? It seems like I'm offering a lot. Can you just explain a little bit of the reward? What is this all about your coming death, Jesus? That's not going to happen. I understand a lot, and that's not going to happen. Jesus even fields a question from Peter about his taxes. I don't know that I've ever thought of asking the Lord that one, but I've certainly thought of asking somebody that one. Peter is so granular and so complex at times and so nuanced and he's also so simple and so salty that that's why Peter. So I want to take you on a whirlwind tour of Peter's walk with the Lord. And um, this is going to be like being in a jet airplane going over downtown Memphis at 700 miles an hour. And I just apologize on the front end. So I've never prepared and prepped so much for a talk um, before this one, because I was nervous, because this is frankly still frightening, but I'll I'll get there in a minute. And um, so I practiced this morning in my driveway and I put on my sweatpants and my sweatshirt and I tried to preach to the trees in my driveway and I stopped the clock at 40 minutes because that's what Ken told me. And so I was a third of the way through my notes. (laughs) So we're just going to rock it on and we're going to make the best of it. So here we go. And Jim, I apologize, man. So much more polish and so much more like finesse and everything. I don't even have the clicker thing. I don't, I'm not, this is terrible. This is so amateur hour. Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 20. uh, The best you could do is just turn through this with me. I wasn't organized enough to get all this to Ken early enough. And so you'd have a seizure watching all these passages of scripture come up here. So just stay with me for a second. So following Jesus, following the temptation of the Jesus, and if you overlay the chronology of the gospels, you know that Jesus is baptized, and then Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted, and then Jesus returns, collects a couple of disciples, and then to the wedding feast. And that involves overlaying the chronology of all four gospels. In the wilderness... As one of my favorite mentors once taught me, Jesus denies himself food and water for the sake of purification before temptation. And yet he returns to a wedding feast in Cana and he provides luxury to guests who have already had something to drink. And as we walk through Peter's life, I want you to see the beauty and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm really after is for you to see that, not just to talk about Peter. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18... Let's see how Peter's doing for a second. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, that is, Jesus did, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net by the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So checkbox number one for Peter. As a disciple, he acts immediately, and he acts with completeness. So far, so great. Solid Peter. There's a corollary passage to this in Luke chapter five. You remember this, right? Where Jesus is on the bank teaching in the Lake of Gennesaret and he gets crowded into the water and they put him in a boat and they push him out a little bit. And he tells Peter, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter with the mark of a disciple says that incredible phrase, nevertheless, even though we fished all night and didn't catch anything, nevertheless, at your word. The hallmark of a disciple already seen in Peter at his calling. Nevertheless, at your word we'll put down our nets. So far, Peter's doing pretty well. Look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, if you're following along. The five thousand are fed, and after the feeding the five thousand, starting in verse twenty-two, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. Verse 24: But the boat by this time was a long way from land. They were beaten by waves against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And guess who stands up, you all know the story, and says, Lord, if it is you, just tell me to come and I'm walking on water. It's Peter. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. If you want a physical representation, a micro little lesson on what prayer looks like in the life of a disciple, you're about to see it in verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The full weight of the disciple In the hands of our Lord, in the midst of fear. That's prayer. So far, Peter's killing it. So far, Peter's doing a real bang up job here, I think. Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Peter has an amazing couple of things happen to him, and I want to just run through it really quickly. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some others Jeremiah. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, son of, uh, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for Jesus, excuse me, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter has this amazing revelation. Heaven has spoken into Peter, and Peter has spoken this truth, and Jesus has given him amazing praise in the midst of it. So, so far, Peter is an immediate follower. He acts with With passion and with immediacy and with completeness, he's walking with the Lord. He has this revelation. And then go to verse 21 for a second. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. Which is it, Peter? Is he the Christ? Is he the son of the living God, like you said two sentences ago? Or is he confused? Does he need education? You know, one of the answers to why Peter is because apparently intermittent faith and failure are part of the normal life of a disciple. Apparently, Peter's going to go through seasons where he understands great truth, and then he also acts in ignorance, and to watch the interaction of our blessed Savior in the midst of a disciple struggling through intermittent periods of faith and faithlessness. I mean, that ought to give you hope. It gives me hope. Because I struggle with those episodes. Sometimes more in one camp than the other. often. And by the way, this is the same temptation. And look at what Peter says. He says, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. As you know, this is exactly the same as the third temptation. This is the circumvention of the cross. Jesus, you should have the crown without the cross. Isn't that exactly what Satan said in the third temptation? All you have to do, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down before me. Anybody here attracted to the joy of salvation but not too certain about the cost? I think there's a lot of times in my life when I'm in the community of brothers, sisters in Christ and I'm ready to take up a cross and walk and follow him and then there's other times where I'm I'm scared of what it might cost. And apparently in the life of Peter, Jesus is okay with that. And I think that's encouragement. And I think our church needs to know that. Matthew 26 is the final passage we'll talk about with Peter very quickly. And Matthew 26 is almost hard to read if you're familiar with the passage. But quickly we'll go through it. Verses 30 through 33. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is immediately after the institution of the Lord's Supper. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus went with them and he said to them, You will all fall away from me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And here comes Peter to educate Jesus again. Thank goodness Peter is there to help out our poor Lord with his misunderstanding. Peter answered and said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Still correcting Jesus. And Jesus said to him in verse 34, truly I tell you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. In verses 40, 43, and 45, there are three different instances in chapter 26, 40, 43, and 45. In each of those instances, The Lord asks Peter and other disciples to wait, watch, and pray with him. And you know what happens every time the Lord comes back to them, he finds them what? Finds them asleep. And it'd be easy to pick on that, it'd be easy to tear up Peter and just make him a scapegoat. But can I just sum up that passage by saying he's weak and he's human? And he's in process with the Lord. I think being weak and human and in process with the Lord is apparently part of a disciple's walk with him. Was it Peter's best moment? No, not at all. But it was part of Peter. And I imagine there's more than one person here who may be weak, human, and not really hitting the mark. In verse 50, Peter takes out a sword and decides to do some dissection, That's a medical word. It means to take things apart. In John 18, we learn that he took the ear off of Malchus, sermon servant of the high priest. So not only is Peter brave and courageous and ready to act and ready to move, but he's also brash. He's corrective. He wants to instruct Jesus. He's convinced that the Lord doesn't know what he thinks he knows. And oh, by the way, he's also violent. Sounds like a perfect cocktail for the lead disciple, Right? Peter is a project. <laughs> in verse 57, it says Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered and Peter was following them at a distance. I imagine there's a bunch of us that have followed at a distance at times. And starting in verse 69 and going through verse 75, there's this, interaction between Peter and a couple of people. First of all, there's a servant girl that comes in verse 69. She was probably eight or nine years old. And because of this big, hairy, angry, mean-looking nine-year-old girl, Peter says, I don't know him. And then girl number two comes up and says, this man was with Jesus. And Peter, once again, having a bad day, denies him. And after a little while, verse 73, the bystanders came up and said to Jesus, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And in Luke 22, there's this haunting little passage, 22 verse 61, where it says, the Lord looked at Peter. That is the beginning of the end of Peter. Now, in about one-eighth the amount of time that it would normally take, I'm going to take you through the new Peter. So stay with me for a second. Turn to Acts chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me just say this. Before we beat up Peter too bad, you know, at least he was there. My dear bride has, to her credit, about 600,000 times in our marriage given me the benefit of the doubt for a good effort. And that's godly. Peter was there. John MacArthur says, this is the kind of failure you only see among the brave, among those who are willing to get close enough to the enemy. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up. Wait a minute, Andy, I thought you told me that Peter hides in the shadows from servant girls and from high priest servants and bystanders. Well, apparently there's a new Peter on the scene and in 115, he stood up among the brothers and he's about to preach and he's about to instruct and he's about to do two things. He's about to preach from Psalm 69 and from Psalm 109 and then he's about to call the brothers, the disciples, to remember the leading of the Holy Spirit Okay, I don't know if that's a shock to you, but the Peter we were talking about for the last few minutes and the Peter we have now is a completely different man. Something happened. In Acts 2, 14, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. He stands up, he lifts his voice, and he addresses him, and he says, "'Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words.'" No longer is Peter cowering from a servant girl in a corner. Now he is standing in front of a large amount of people owning the message. I desperately want that kind of boldness and passion and frankly fearlessness. I want our church to have that. If you ask the elders, where do we want first of to go or how to proceed from here, I'd say intimacy with Jesus, number one. But man, if we could just have some boldness for Jesus thrown in there and some great worship, that'd be, man, that would get it done right there. Ready to serve, fearless, ready to own the cause of Christ. Not in the flesh, but responding to the beauty and passion of the Lord's character. In Acts two verses thirty-seven through forty, he calls the men of Gd to listen to him, and to quickly sum up because I'm gonna I've got to get I've got to get to a certain point at fifty. If I don't get there by 57 is going to be painful. So. He he preaches on the day of Pentecost, and when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, he quotes from, does this sound like Peter to you? (laughs) He quotes Psalms, Joel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Who taught Peter the Old Testament? I mean, he's a fisherman. He's a fisherman who corrected Jesus, brash, impetuous, and now he is standing up repeatedly among the saints and teaching, powerfully handling the word of God, apparently powerful and at the end of that sermon it says in verse 37 now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do and Peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you and if you follow the passage you know that 3,000 believers were added to the church that day Quickly finishing out Peter's life in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are leaving the temple and there's a lame beggar there. You know the story. The beggar asks for alms and Peter says, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And Peter heals him. The authorities freak out. They arrest him. He gets brought back to Caiaphas once again in Acts chapter 4. And he stands before Caiaphas and he basically just owns it. And he says, if you're asking me how this man was healed, he was healed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that you crucified. Peter's a completely different person. He's fearless. In Acts chapter five, he gets arrested again. He's freed by an angel. He goes back to preaching and then he gets arrested again. He's got great skill at that part of the ministry. He's beaten. He rejoices at the end of Acts chapter 5 that he's worthy to be counted worthy of suffering. In Acts chapter 9, he raises a dead person, Tabitha, also called Dorcas. I mean, he's acting as if he was Jesus walking through Acts, frankly. In Acts chapter 10, he gets a vision And that vision subsequently redirects his ministry to the Gentiles. And finally, in Acts chapter 12, he's arrested by Herod and put in jail once again. And when he's put in jail in Acts chapter 12, it's really interesting if you go to that passage and read it, he's sleeping between two guards. Well, how come Peter in Matthew 26 is scared of a couple little girls and Matthew, excuse me, and Peter in Acts chapter 12 is sleeping between a couple guards? The answer is easy. As one of my favorite Bible teachers once said, it's because he's already free. I want to see our church, my children, my family, me, I want to see us walk in that sort of freedom. And it doesn't matter if it's COVID, or it doesn't matter if it's finances, or it doesn't matter if it's struggle with the proper placement of ministry effort but I want to see us walk as free. Free in the Lord, driven by the Holy Spirit, informed by the word of God. That's why Peter, because if you look at his life, there's some amazing transformation that happens. I'd like to have some, please, in me, in us. So go to John 21. I got 10 minutes left to wrap this up, so do not let your hearts be discouraged. I'm watching the clock. In John 21, I would say, and many would say, and I'm simply following on the heels of better and brighter teachers. I'm simply following on the example of people who have gone long before and taught far more than I have when I say John 21 has to be the turning point for Peter in his life, and I think there's a lot of stuff we can learn from that. So let's go to John 21 quickly, and we'll read through it. As you know, John 21 starts by the Sea of Tiberias. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, who was called the twin, excuse me, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing Jesus didn't tell him to go fishing. Jesus told him to go to Galilee and wait for him. And there he would meet him. He also called him a fisher of men. Men don't live in the lake. They live on the land. The fish live in the lake. Peter, why are you fishing for fish? And they said to him, we'll go with you. The disciples followed And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, they stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, caught anything? Well, no, in fact. There is something in John 21, if we were to take John John 21 and say, this is a turning point, a pivotal turning point in the life of a significant disciple, later apostle Peter, if we're to look at this, we have to say this. There's something about intimacy with Jesus and transformative work in Jesus that starts with the disciple understanding their poverty apart from the goodness of the Lord. Not only is Peter not able to catch fish, but he's, not also, he's also not able to remember what the Lord told him. He didn't tell him to go fish for fish tell to go fish for men and to wait for him. So Jesus said, cast the net, verse six, on the other side of the boat and you'll find some and they cast it when they were not able to haul it in because of all the quantity of fish. You remember, of course, that Peter has been here before, right? In Luke chapter five and it's noteworthy to remember that and I wouldn't be a good teacher, I guess, if I didn't help you remember that but what I really want you to remember is this apparently Jesus has to take Peter back to the same teaching point over and over and over again and that gives me great hope how many times am I going to have to be told to be sweet and kind to my wife and kids well apparently I'm going to have to be told that a lot how many times am I going to have to be told that My reputation doesn't matter. All that matters is the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his beauty. And I need to simply step out of the way and let him serve my patients. How many times am I going to have to be told that, you know, the best thing I could do would be to share the gospel with every dying patient I have and sit there, even though I miss dinner, lunch, supper, and nighttime until we've talked through everything on their heart and they've had a chance to repent. Apparently, I'm going to have to be told that a lot. And you know what? It gives me great hope. It gives me great courage to know that the Lord Jesus Christ takes Peter back to the same point of teaching over and over and over again. He never taps Peter out. He never says, you know what? Simon Peter Barjona. Like your mother calls you by your whole name when you're in trouble. He never does that. He never taps out on Peter. He just keeps lovingly, graciously walking him through discipleship. Jesus provides fish for them. They get to the bank, and Jesus is cooking up breakfast. Well, what's he cooking up? Look at that. He's got some fish on the grill. Verse 7, excuse me, verse 6. I'm sorry, 7, yeah. So the disciple of Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Simon Peter jumps in the water, throws himself in the sea. They come to the beach, and Jesus is cooking up on a grill, and they've got fish. Well, where do you get the fish? I don't know, but he didn't need Peter for it. It may sound a little harsh. But for a disciple to progress through intimacy, not only is there a place for them to understand their poverty before the Lord and apart from his work, that's number one. Not only is there a place for him, them to, to take in the grace of his provision. Not only is there a place for those two, but there's also a place at some point for you to realize that the Lord is omniscient. And the Lord is sovereign, and he is not needy. We need that sort of understanding of the Lord. I'm so glad I don't have a needy God that's dependent upon me. You remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul speaking before the Areopagus. He says, I see you have this temple here, this, this, this altar to the unknown God. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it Paul addresses him and lets him know he's gonna tell him exactly who that God is. He does not live in temples baked with hands, nor does he need anything since he gives himself, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Peter needed to understand much against the grain of all Peter's assertions that the Lord really didn't need Peter's fishing skills. I got this one, Peter. If I need fish, I get fish. If I need men, I get men. But I don't need you. So there's a place for a disciple to understand the poverty of themselves apart from the Lord. There's a place for them to accept the provision of grace from the Lord. There's a place also for rekindled passion. I mean, after all, Peter's the only one we know of that put on his cloak because he was stripped for work put on his cloak, jumped in and started swimming. I love that, man. I tell you, sometimes I get beat down at work and I get a little salty and I come home and I just wanna like, I just wanna disappear for a little bit. You know, I just, that passion's gone. I'm just like. It's, it's not good. <laughs> but Peter gets that passion rekindled right here. He jumps in the water, he swims to Jesus and it's almost like he's excited to see him. In verse 9, the Lord is cooking up fish. And in verse 15, he starts a series of questions. And look, Jim or Taylor or more skilled teachers could do a better job with this for sure. There's a lot of discussion about the words that Jesus uses. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter answers, you know I love you. Jesus answers in the agapeo, in the highest most elegant form of love. Peter's answers in the friendship sort of love or an affection sort of way. Almost as if Jesus was saying, "Do you love me with everything you have?" and Peter's saying, "Yeah, I have some affection for you." That's the first and the second series of questions. The third question Jesus actually condescends and uses the same word Peter's been using, phileo. "Do you really have affection for me, Peter?" And Peter says, "Yeah, I have affection for you." And I don't know if it's because Peter had the character to know that he didn't deserve to claim the highest sort of love for Jesus or if because it's just a textual issue, I don't know. But I do know this. Not only is there a place in intimacy with Jesus when it is being born for there to be the acceptance of our poverty before the Lord and the acceptance or receiving of his provision to rekindle passion, but there's also a place for us to take inventory of our affections. Jesus calls Peter to inventory his affections right there. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Not just absolute affections, but comparative affections? Peter struggles through it just like we would. Jesus goes on to do two final things. He goes on to clarify Peter's mission by telling him of the kind of death he's going to die. And he goes on to tell him to live before him. The last thing he says is, follow me. You know, There's a refrain in our household. My oldest son would tell you and my kids would tell you if we ever talk about the Bible. We usually get around to talking about something called living before an audience of one. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling Peter to. He says, look, you're going to die a horrible death. You're going to stretch out your arms. That's a reference to the time of death that Peter would suffer. And Jesus says, but I want you to follow me. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, I don't want you to live before little girls or waves or fear or angry mobs or Caiaphases. I want you to live before me, Peter. Me. A final word of encouragement for those who would struggle is to know that Peter didn't forget him. In Matthew 17, Jesus taught Peter submission. In, Matthew, in John 18, he taught him restraint. In Matthew 26, he taught him ministry and humility. In Matthew 18, he taught him forgiveness. In John 21, he taught Peter sacrifice and love and courage. And in Matthew 17, at the, one of the low points of Peter's life, Jesus takes him with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. And oh, by the way, what did Peter write about in his epistles, First and 2 Peter? He wrote about submission, restraint, humility, forgiveness, love, courage, faith, and glory. He never forgot the beach. Peter lived in light of the beach for the rest of his ministry, the beach on the lake of Tiberias. Whatever happened on that beach with Jesus, whether it was realizing his poverty, accepting the provision, whether it's owning his own mission, whether it's whatever part of that stuck, Peter lived in light of it the rest of his life. He was a changed disciple. He became the servant leader. He never forgot what happened on the beach. And so may it be true with me. And so may it be true with us as a church and as a body. We all need some beach time with the Lord. Amen. Until that day, that great day, when we all look up and we see him and we say, He's here. He's here. Great God in heaven, would you please bless us with your presence? Would you help us to understand your word? Would you please bring things to mind from scripture and from the leading of your Holy Spirit to help us to walk with you and love you? Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.